All right, hey, thank you so much, worship team, and uh, so good to see you guys here this morning. I'm uh, really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you for a few minutes about something I think um, is important, I think, to me, and I hope to you as well. Uh, you join us in the second part of a seven-part series we're calling God for the Grown-Up. The premise behind this is that there are some, some of us, and sometimes in seasons of our life, where we have... Uh, a, a God maybe that we have heard about or learned about in our Sunday school age or a five-year-old God, but we have grown up older than five now, but we still maintain a conception of a God who is about five years old. The subtitle of this series tries to tell you what I'm trying to communicate, that a childlike faith doesn't require a childlike God. Last week I tried to set up that if we are not going to have a God who can handle the complexities of adult life, we will no longer worship that God and we will begin to push away from him. If not in full, at least in part, our worship will grow cold, our passions will run dry, and we will run out of interest in believing that a God like this can handle the adult problems of life. So God for the grown-up, as we kick off the new year, is an attempt to remind us that this God that we come and sing about every Sunday, or you worship in whatever way you talk about that. When you talk about God, it actually matters what you believe about him in a pretty deep way. Now, to roll into where I want to go this morning, I want to play a game with you. So we're going to have a little bit of fun to start things off this morning, okay? Any of you ever play the game Taboo? That car game, a little bit older? A little bit older, we got any hand waves on Taboo? Okay, a couple of you, good. So you know the general gist. Here's how this is going to work this morning. This is interactive. You will not be embarrassed nor need to share or anything like that. It's going to be localized, fun, along your you know, row or whatever, okay? So find somebody next to you or somebody's, uh, one or two or three or four, maybe four might be a stretch because it's going to be hard to communicate across the line, all right? So find a pair or three or four that are, is your like, unit now, okay? You got that? You looked across, you made eye contact, maybe you're meeting somebody for the first time, maybe your girlfriend is here or your boyfriend, maybe someone you want to be your girlfriend or boyfriend, here's an opportunity for that moment, okay? So here we go. Find that person. Now, identify, I need someone to be the spokesman, because I'm going to put something up here on the screen in a minute. I want the spokesperson to be the one who sees this while the others, you know, duck their eyes or go to sleep for a minute or whatever, or close their eyes or whatever. So only one person in your unit, in your group, will see what I put up on the screen in a minute. You got it? Because I don't know, cheating, that's not going to work here. Okay, it's church, all right? Got it? All right, we are going to do this. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to hit the, uh, I'm going to flip the slide here, <clears throat> and the one unit people, you ready? Everyone else, eyes closed, look away. One unit people, look up here now. You see this image. You need to describe this image to the people in your group without using the word or words and without using like a rhyming thing. In other words, if this is Humpty Dumpty, you can't say rhymes with Mumpty Mumpty. Like that, that's cheating. It doesn't work. Okay. You got it? All right. Hang on and go. All right. Now everyone can look again. You're going to have, you saw it. You have, I'm going to give you 15 seconds. I know it's a lot of time. Try to do your best with it. 15 seconds. Describe it without using the word. <laughs> Your question? Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. All right. How did that go? 
Went all right? We got some people who raised their hands and thought they were going to win a prize or something. There's nothing, there's nothing to win. You win a, a hymnal near you. I don't know what you can win, okay? All right, so what was it? A hay bale with a straw hat on top, right? You get that? Did you get that? No? Yeah? Now, here's the thing. It's difficult to explain to somebody else what is invisible to them, isn't it? And those of you who have seen it, you actually know what it is. Even though I just told you, hey, this is a hay bale with a straw hat on top, those of you who haven't seen it, you are imagining something different than what the people who have actually seen it know that it is. And so even though I have just told you, and your friends I'm sure have told you, this is what it is, it's a hay bale with a straw hat on top, your vision of it is different than those right around you who have actually seen it with their two eyes. You want to see it? Here it is. This is what it actually is. All right? Now, you may look at your partner and be like, what were you thinking? You've got to be kidding me. I was thinking penguin coming off. Anyway, you never know. All right, so... Now, that was fun. Now that you have the, the hang of it, we're going to do it again. This time, switch the partner. This is the last time, so, all right, last time, so get this one right this time. But I'm going to up the ante. We're going to make things a little more difficult this time around. All right, so the other person or somebody else, are you ready? In five, four, three, two, one, I'm putting it on the screen now. Describe this to the people around you. In three, two, one, go. Without using the words. You win a hymnal. And five, four, three, two, one, boom. All right. How did that go? Anyone get that one? Got a few who got that. Very good, very good. All right. Now, it is difficult, it is difficult to explain something that's invisible with the hay bale and the straw hat, but it's a little more difficult to explain something that's both invisible and mysterious, like this. This is a different category than just a hay bale with a straw hat on top, isn't it? So what I ask you to do is to take this concept and in a few seconds do almost the impossible, and that is share with your partner something that is both invisible and mysterious. And here's the problem with that, is that you're talking to people who have different experiences to try to process what you're saying. Maybe you're talking to someone who's much younger than you or someone who's much older than you or someone, if you're trying to explain perfect love to someone who just got married, it can be different than explaining it to somebody who's been married for a really long time or for someone who just is coming off of a divorce. Like I might say to someone who just got married, this is how you feel about your spouse right now. To someone who just got divorced, I might say, this is what, this is what broken promises are made of. Because your experience impacts how you understand what we're trying to communicate. It's both invisible and mysterious. I remember when Jen and I were first married um, in, in year one, uh, she got sick, and we learned quickly that we show love differently in those times. So when she was throwing up in the bathroom, I went in to hold her hair back from 
getting her, you know, hair in the, the vomit as was going in the toilet. I hope it's okay that I share the story. <laughs> okay. And so I'm in there, and, and Jen is basically like, why are you here? And, and I'm like, well, this is what perfect love is, right? Like the husband comes in and helps at a great time of need, and she's like, get out of my bathroom. Like I can, <laughs> I can do this without you, and this is disgusting. Like get out of here. Even in that, even in an attempt to show perfect love to one another, man, we are so different, right? Because our experiences are so different, our opinions are so different, and what we've been taught, how we've been raised, how our parents raised us is all so different. So if you think it's difficult, if not impossible, to explain an invisible thing to somebody, imagine having it be invisible and mysterious. And imagine having it be invisible, mysterious, and by definition, beyond our capacity to understand. Because now we're talking about God. When you say or when I say we worship God, we are saying we have an invisible mysterious, beyond our capacity to comprehend God, who we are trying to figure out how to worship. That is difficult. Harder than a hay bale with a straw hat. Harder than perfect love. This is a problem. It is a real problem. This morning, what I want to do with you is I want to kind of pull back a little bit and work on a couple of ways, a few ways, that I believe that as a people we have generally begun to misunderstand who God is. Here's what happens when we can't explain something clearly or when something is beyond our ability to understand. What we try to do is we try to communicate from the known to the unknown. Your partner in this little exercise, they were in the unknown category. And so you might, if you were working with them on the farm, you might say, hey, we were just moving these, right, on item number one in the hay bale and straw hat. We were just moving these last week, or you helped me at the Fall Fun Fest unload all of these in the parking lot. Oh, hay bale, yes. And remember, Grandpa always wears this on the farm. Oh, straw hat, yeah, put one on top of the other, you have it. I'm communicating from the known to the unknown based on your experience. The problem with... God and communicating this way is that we, we run into real communication problems because we do not have a clear grasp on God in the first place. And so we don't even have a solid known to communicate to our unknown. We have a good portion, but we don't have the full picture. God, I would argue, is beyond our fullest capacity to understand. And so we're doing our very best to communicate to one another and for us to understand who this God is. I'll also say this, that just because we're sincere in our attempt to understand God and communicate God doesn't mean that we do a great job of it. Just because you are very sincere in trying to communicate perfect love and a hay bale with a straw hat doesn't mean that you are awesome at that. You were sincere, but you may not have been any good at it. That's okay. This is the problem. Just because we're sincere doesn't mean we're always on track. And so this morning, what I want to do, and this is going to be part one, really, of two parts uh, series. What I want to do is I want to draw away some of the misconceptions we have about God. The way I put it last week is, in this series, this week is going to be like blazing a trail into the woods where we're kind of trying to clear the brush 
I think there are some unhealthy views that we have of God that sometimes by default get latched into our heart or our mind and our passions that we don't always know exist, but they keep us from really understanding God in his fullness. If you've ever watched a TV show and you get near the end of it, and it's 60 minutes long and you're 52 minutes in, you might look to someone that you're watching it with and say, oh, there's no time for this plot to finish. It's going to be to be continued. You ever have that experience? That's what this morning will feel like when we get to the end. I'm just telling you now. Because this morning will be to be continued next week. To be continued this morning, we're going to pull away. Next week, we're going to focus in. So now here's, here's the deal. As people, we have always wanted to, we've always wanted to know God, even though he's difficult to know. And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that shows us and plays us out a little bit and then jump into how we kind of get our paths crossed with God. So I want to take you, if you have your Bible with you, we're just going to jump off of this passage, but I want to take you to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Um, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. Genesis and then Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, well, there's a Bible in the pew near you. We'd be glad to give that to you. But Exodus chapter 33 demonstrates something that has been true, I believe, for all people at all times and all generations who want to know who God is. And it's a picture of Moses trying to communicate with God, trying to know him. So here's what's happening. In Exodus chapter 33, the nation of Israel, I just want to give you some context to this. The nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 32 um, has been bad. Uh, Moses went up to the, uh, the mountain to meet with God, and he left Aaron in charge. And in that process, the people got antsy because Moses didn't come back quickly. You know how long it takes to hike a mountain? Well, he hiked up through the mountain. I don't know how long he was up there, but a while. Long enough where the people started to believe that maybe he isn't coming back. And now here we are lost in the wilderness, and what are we going to do? And so Aaron says, give me your gold rings and all that, and I'm going to make a calf, a golden calf for you. And he makes this calf, and the people begin to worship it. And God knows, and here's how Exodus 32 goes. God, the, the scene is almost like a movie where you have the picture of God meeting with Moses over here, and down in the valley you have the Israelites beginning to be rebellious in their heart and all that. And God says to Moses, there's something bad going on in the camp. Like, I am very angry. I'm ready to destroy these people now. And Moses talks God down. He says, please don't do that. Let me go figure out what's going on. And so Moses leaves with the Ten Commandments. He comes down, he's angry, and he smashes the Ten Commandments. And he lays into Aaron. He's like, Aaron, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron, being the awesome leader that he was, he said, you know, the people, we thought you were gone, and they just gave me their gold. I just threw the gold in the fire, and whoop, out came a golden calf. That's how it reads. It's like, oh, I didn't do it. It just it showed up, and the people started worshiping. Moses takes a golden calf. He burns it down and uh, takes the ashes from it and uh, sprinkles it in the water. And then he forces the Israelites to drink the water. Amazing. And then he says, today is going to be a decision day. If you are with me and with God, come on my side and come over here, and basically draws a line in the sand. And then he says to the people on this side, now, kill those over there. Go. Yeah, they're your brothers, and they're your family. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. And 3,000 Israelites die on that day at the hands of their brothers. You should read the Bible. It's intriguing stuff in there. In Exodus chapter 33, it opens up right on the heels of that. And in the first... Um, few first seven verses, God says to, to Moses, these people cannot stay here. 
If you can imagine trying to move into a home in which there's been a double homicide, for example, like those homes are difficult to occupy because of the memories. And God says, Moses, the people need to move on from here. The memories are too strong. It's time to move in your journey to get the promised land. So go. But Moses, I'm telling you, I'm sending the angel of the Lord ahead. I'm not going. Because he says, he says I'm so angry, I'm afraid I'm going to destroy them. It's amazing. That's how God feels. And Moses says, unless you come with us, like we can't go. This will be futile. How are we going to be distinguished from other people? And so Moses meets with God in a place called the Tent of Meeting on the far side of the camp. The pillar of, or excuse me, the, um, the, the cloud representing God comes down right outside of the uh, Tent of Meeting. And Moses goes into this Tent of Meeting while the rest of the nation, who is just like processing, wow, what a series of events. All these people are dead. We killed them. We drank the water. We did, I can't, what's happening? Moses is meeting with God. And it's, that is the context for what we're about to read in chapter 33, <clears throat> excuse me, 33, verse 12. <clears throat> so here's Moses in verse 12 of chapter 33, meeting with the Lord. He said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not led me, uh, excuse me, let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. And then he says, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses' desire is like ours, to know God. If there's only one thing we can do as a church, we want people to know God. Like, how simple is that? I want you to know who he is. I want you to connect with him. That's what we want to do. That's what the church can do. We want you to know God. This is Moses' heart, that I may know you. This is a big ask, to know the invisible, the mysterious, the powerful, the category-blowing God. And then the Lord replied in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence goes not, uh, excuse me, does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know what you, that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, and this is very interesting, now show me your glory. You ever been there where Moses is? You ever wish that God would just, like, God, I want to believe in you. Like, I want to know that I'm going the right direction. I wish that I could have clarity in this decision. If only you would speak to me, I would know this is wrong, or I know this is right, or I would know what to do. If only you could show me your glory, then my life would be totally different. This is what Moses wants. He's, God, Come on, we're meeting. We're kind of face-to-face, and this wasn't quite like you and I sitting down over breakfast or lunch or meeting and talking face-to-face. This was God meeting with Moses in spirit. Moses is like, God, you can feel it coming from I want to know you. Show me your glory, please. God, show me your glory. Look at what has happened around here. I need to see you. I want to know you. God responds this way in verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. But my face must not 
be seen. And this is the problem that Moses encountered, that you and I encounter. And that is this, that we want to know God and see him, but we do not have the capacity to be able to see what we want. And so we are stuck, as Moses was stuck, wanting to see the glory of a God that we claim to worship, but yet being unable to do that. Wishing we could only understand, but yet not being able to have the capacity to do so. Being like a three-year-old trying to understand where babies come from. Like, just don't get it yet, but I think they keep coming. But I don't know how it works. The capacity isn't there, but the truth still is. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And as a result, because we are stuck in this mix between wanting to see God and not having the capacity to understand Him, we do our best. We do our Boy Scout best to try to know him, to try to get after who he is. But just like your partner trying to explain to you what a hay bale and straw hat is or what perfect love really is, it is difficult and it is met with all kinds of struggle and strain. So the next few minutes, I just want to pull out some of those struggles that we have. And here's why I want to do that for you. Because what I want for you... if if we are not able to think well of God, and listen to me on this so you know why I'm spending the next few minutes here. If you and I are not able to think clearly on God, let us not be surprised if the people coming behind us think even less of Him. If we are not able to think clearly about who God really is, do not be surprised if the people who come after us think even less of Him. And, as a people, we generally tend to drift away from clarity. We drift away from excellence in our thinking. We drift away. We don't drift toward. We generally tend to drift away. So I want to just rise to the surface a few different things that we can think are God that actually are not. Sometimes we envision God in these ways in an attempt, in a genuine heartfelt attempt to relate to him and understand him. But we are stuck, as Moses is stuck, wanting to see his glory but being unable to do so. So without further ado, let me explain, roll this out. I am in debt to J.B. Phillips, who wrote exhaustively about this in his book, um, Your God is Too Small. I recommended that last week. Great little read. Okay? So sometimes we will picture God in these ways. Sometimes we will picture God as our conscience. This is maybe the leading um, difficulty we have. This conscience is that voice inside we know that tells us what we think is right or wrong. If you've ever had an encounter later in life with someone who taught you in school, you were taught to talk to them as Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith in school. And you see them and all of a sudden their name is John or Susie or whatever. And there's that little catch like, am I allowed to call you this now? Like, because your conscience has been trained to call them Mr. Smith. Well, what if you call them John straight up? Is this God's voice speaking to you or just you? The conscience is often that voice that keeps us from doing wrong and speaks to us in the middle of that and says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, and then speaks to us on the back end like, oh, you bad person, you shouldn't have done that. And sometimes we relate in a 100% way that God is my conscience, that that little voice that I hear is God. That is God. And we think that way. But here's the problem with that. Our conscience is so um, malleable or shapeable, especially in the very sensitive person, that we can shape 
that voice into something very much other than God. For example, for our Amish friends, those who have left the church, there may come a time in their life where they will drive a car. Well, for some of them, the very first time they get behind the wheel of a car, having been raised in a home where driving cars is considered ungodly, there's a little prick of the conscience or pang of the conscience. It's like, oh, I'm really doing this. Like, is this okay with you, God? The rest of us who don't have that, we sure hope that God doesn't think it's ungodly to drive a car because our conscience isn't moved that way. Well, if our conscience is God, then we better be sure that our conscience is always right. And we better be sure that our conscience isn't just shaped by our own experiences in the past. And let me add this. Worshiping God, is, if he's our conscience, leaves for a very uh, hollow view of God. I don't want to worship a voice, give my whole heart and passions over to a voice inside me that primarily is only reminding me of the things that I do wrong. Why would I worship that? I might be snapped into obedience in that, but what I really need is a God who can speak above my conscience, who can speak to me through the Word of God and can help me see objectively what is right and wrong. And so for many of us, if we've grown up with a conscience being moved in a certain way, there comes a time we have to say, wait a minute, is this God speaking or is this just my conscience? And the two are not identical. They can't, God can move in our conscience, but there are times when a conscience that is overdeveloped or underdeveloped will miss the heart of God. So I want to pull those apart for us. Okay? God is not just our conscience. God is also not a parent. For us growing up, everyone growing up, your most influential figures in your life have been your parents, particularly in the Bible world and in the Christian world, a father. And here's the deal with that, that God will liken himself in the scriptures to a father. And so because of that, for many of us, our most clear view of God is how we view our dad. Now, if you're a father, if you're a man who at some point will be a father, this is a real problem for us because we are a mixed bag of God's delight and design and the beauty and the glory of God shown through us as men and also the depravity of man represented in our own hearts and beings. We know that we're a mixed bag. And so this is a struggle for us. But this is the reality that for some of us, we see God as a parent, in particular relating to our dads. That if you've had a situation, a relationship with dad where you are um, constantly trying to please dad or you have a distant relationship with dad, unable to process emotion with him, for example, or if you're afraid of him for some way, shape, and form, or you um, feel like you know, he is disappointed in who you are, it is difficult not to think that God, my father, feels the same way toward me. I just want to begin to separate that. That is not the same. God is not just the, the mass total of your mom and dad. God is separate from that. Could be reflected in some of the glory of dad, absolutely, but he is separate from that. God is also not just a grandfather. Uh, imagine it this way. Children growing up will often think of their, the, the people who are older than them as being more powerful. It just makes sense. You're, you're small and the tall people can lift things, can move things, can think things, can write things, can draw things that you can't do. So it only makes sense that the oldest and wisest person in the universe would be God. And here's the problem with that. It's one thing to see God as old and powerful. It's another thing to see God as old-fashioned. It's one thing to see that God has made the world. It's another thing to see that God has made the newest iteration of the iPhone. It's one thing to see that God 
at one point in history has made everything that's safe, but to think that God understands the coding behind the most recent technological advancement of the iPhone, the iPad, the whatever, because certainly God wouldn't use Android. Um, Sorry, did that come out in church? Do you see the difference? It's not just that God has made things overall in history, but it's this view that if God were here, he would be sitting on the porch on a rocker, and he would need help logging into his email account. I mean, I know he made the world and all that good stuff, but he doesn't know the world now. That's the view of God as a grandfather. He's worthy of being revered, but not really of worship, because he can't really be in charge of a creative, powerful, imaginative future which engages all of what I see in front of me. That isn't God. It's me. And I'm just telling you, that's not true either. It's just not true. God is not like that. He is not old-fashioned in that way, intimately involved in all of the creative acts that we see. Fourthly, God as gentle and composed. For some of us, uh, we would think that God would never ruffle a feather, very placid in his emotional state, just calm and collected, the guy who would never get in trouble in school. He would probably never leave a crumb on his cafeteria tray. He would be the guy who was always nice to all the kids on the playground and overall a rather boring sort of individual. Things like this are not helped when people write songs about God being gentle in this way. I'm not against all these songs. I grew up with some of these, so I'm not trying to throw stones too hard. But um, I was reminded of a song that Bill Gaither wrote in 1975 called Gentle Shepherd. Some of you might know this song. It goes, Gentle Shepherd, come and lead us, for we need you to help us find our way. Gentle Shepherd, come and feed us, for we need your strength from day to day. There's no other we can turn to who can help us face another day. Gentle Shepherd, come and lead us, for we need you to help us find our way. You guys know that song? Some of you know that song? Yeah. I've sung it many times. It's been meaningful for me. I'm not trying to, I'm not against all things Gaither. That song reminds us, God is just, he's just gentle. I'm picking on just one song. He writes other songs, so this is not anti-Gaither, okay? The point is, it is no wonder, it is no wonder that people will look elsewhere for their heroes if this is who God is. This is hardly inspiring. This is hardly engaging to see a God like this. It just isn't true. Now, fifthly, some of us see God as a perfectionist, and it only makes sense that God is perfect, therefore the best way to respond to God is to set up standards that are equally as perfect and try our best to keep them. And then when we realize we can't keep them, the only thing we can do is lower our efforts, and then we can't do that because we really want to raise up to God's standards. We don't want to give ourselves a break, and so we'll keep trying. Some of us have seen God as a perfectionist. That's the only way really to please him. And I want to tell you there's a difference between being perfect and being a perfectionist. That God is perfect, absolutely, but he's not a perfectionist. The story of the prodigal son holds true. He likened himself to a father who ran to his disobedient child. Romans 5.8 is still true that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us in that moment. That God is not a perfectionist. If you have grown up in a home where it's just been drilled into you over and over and over again to meet the standard, 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 and maybe the word hasn't been used of perfectionist, but if you're applying that to your relationship with God, I'm just wanting to tell you, God is not 
a perfectionist. He's in the people business, which is a messy business. He is perfect, yes. But he's deeply gracious and compassionate. Sixthly, sometimes we see God as an escape. This is true when we retreat from the busyness of life, we retreat from the stuff of life that is going on, and we pull back into God. Some people outside the church see the church this way anyway. They feel like the church is disengaged, removed from the social ills of our day, uninvolved, don't want to get our hands messy, and we just use religion as a crutch. We get back into our safe little church circle. We all agree that life is good and God is good and he can handle it all the time, all the time. God is good, God is good all the time. We say that to each other to make each other feel better. Then we say, hey, God can, never gives you more than you can handle. Everybody feels better and then they leave. But you never really engage. You never get your God out of the greenhouse. You never plant him in the middle of the world where storms and floods hit. You just don't do that. And here's the deal. In a way, God is an escape. Running to him is an escape. But the reason for the escape is not to stay away from him and to stay away from the world. Excuse me. The reason for the escape is not to run from the problem. The reason for the escape is to be renewed in your energy and focus to get back into the battle. It's like when you're worn out and blown up from life and you go to a friend because you need to process with them, you're escaping to their friendship. Why? So that you can go back out there and fight. That's what God is. He's the refuge and strength, absolutely an escape, but a place to come find your strength to get back out there in the storm of life. Because that's where he is. So God is an escape where he just is removed from the things of life. If that is who God is, it is absolutely no surprise that people would have no interest in being involved in the worship of God like that. I wouldn't either. God also is a big business leader. This is the thinking that if you're a business leader, you can manage five employees well and know all their family histories and know all that they do in their free time if they care to tell you, and you can really care for, for, for um, five employees deeply. Your company grows tenfold. You have 50 employees. You can care for them pretty well and know them pretty, pretty well. You, you multiply that by 10 again. You go to 500 employees. Now you're starting to forget first names, but you still can generally get that right, but you're starting to get removed from that. Now you go to 50,000 employees, and there is no way on God's green earth you will know all of their names. Now, imagine multiplying that by the world. And How in the world does God know all the prayers of all of his people across the whole world for generation upon generation upon generation? He's just like a big business leader. Like He needs other people to do that. He needs to you know, farm that out and have a good system. And we can begin to think, that God is simply a magnification of our best human qualities. We begin to think of him as like a magnified human being, and it's not who he is. God is intimately involved in our lives. He's not just limited by our limitations as humanity. So to think of him by imagining that, well, I couldn't manage that many people, I don't know how God does it, and begin to disconnect from the personalness of God, is to think about God incorrectly. We don't think about him from our human standpoint. Some of us think of God as a disappointment, and I get why. But it's impossible to worship a disappointment. You prayed for something, it hasn't come the way you've wanted it to come. You wish you were further along in life, you're not. Things happen that were terrible, and legitimately... I mean that sincerely. Terrible. And God is a disappointment to you. And I don't want to play that down. I want to pretend that's not true. But it's not going to be possible to worship a disappointment. And so if this is who God is for you, processing of this has to begin. 
God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, prayed and asked his Father to remove from him the suffering of the cross. And to say, God, I don't want to go through a torture and death. And God the Father said, no. You're going through it. Jesus was <laughs> rejected by his own Father. So I just want to say, if God is a disappointment to you, somewhere along the line, we've got to have to process that because it is not going to be possible for you to ever worship a disappointment. It's not going to be possible. And finally, sometimes we perceive of God as the best of our culture, like he's the awesome American God. He has all the, the values that a good American would have, and he thinks the same way we do about the future and finances, and the world should kind of operate around this way. The problem with that, of course, is that when God is the best of our culture, magnified, like the most generous, and he would definitely, definitely, definitely be organic, have a garden out back that he would grow his own food. Like he would, he would definitely um, drive a hybrid vehicle if he drove anything at all. Like he would definitely, like all the things we're beginning to value and kind of speak, and that, that fluctuate and move, like that's definitely what God would do. And he would definitely hate the things we hate. Like, he definitely would. He would, he would not like that. Not like, it just becomes kind of the magnification of our interests as a culture, but not maybe really who God really is. The problem, of course, is that we can't see our own cultural blind spots and we create a God who can never actually instruct us or teach us or rebuke us when we need it. Now, this is why, as you think about this picture, this is why Jeff Bingham's quote, I believe, is still true. The most important thought you can ever think is a thought you think of when you think of God. It's a difficult thought. But again, here's why I put all this out here for you. We're stuck where Moses was stuck. God, I want to know you. I want to see your glory. I want to go from the known to the unknown, but I'm stuck in here. And I'm just telling you, if we don't think with clarity about who this God is, People coming behind us will think even less of him. And we do not ever drift toward what is most clear. We will always drift toward what is less clear, more nebulous and less direct. And I don't want for you, and I don't want for me, and I don't want for this church to be a place where we unknowingly and unwittingly, just because we were not thoughtful about it, begin to worship God. It's like a grandfather in the sky. He's just really, yeah, he's to be revered. He's just not present. Yeah. He doesn't understand the world. God is a, like my dad. I have to always please him. He's kind of perfectionistic. God is like my conscience, and my conscience is always right. I don't want this mess for us. I want more for us. I want clarity for us. As much as we can garner on this side of eternity. And this is why this feels like part one of two. Because if you're asking the question, well, that's great, Tim. You've just deconstructed a whole bunch of things. What will you put in its place? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because next week is part two of two on this. I'm going to attempt next week to give you as clear a picture as I am able to of who I think this God is, who I think is worthy of all of the weight of our soul being placed on him. God for the grown-up. Who is God? Next Sunday. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning, and I pray that you would, through your Spirit, work in us, teach us, instruct us, where our view of you may have just come off the rails slightly or taken a little slight left turn or a hard right, where our picture of you needs to be readjusted, clarified,
that our understanding of you can be made so much clearer by thinking about who in the world you actually are. Father, we share the desire of Moses with his people to know you. We want to see your glory, and yet we are stuck with a limited capacity. It's not that we're unable to see any of you, but we just can't even get a full picture yet. So Father, be merciful to us, I pray, and help us to pull out any of these false views of you that might be present in our own understanding, that we can be men and women, young men and young women, who follow hard after you, pursuing you in as clear a way as we can, that at the end of the day, that our hearts and our souls be given to something that matters, that can bear the weight of our soul. I pray this for us, I pray this for me. Work in us, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.